You're listening to the Word of Life AG Podcast. This week, Pastor Tom put a Christmas twist on our year-long vision statement, continuing what Jesus started. If you want to view the full service, including worship, please head to our website at wordoflifeag.org. That's wordoflifeag.org. While you're there, you can also see what's coming up at the church or even check out some next steps. We're so glad you're getting caught up on the message. Let's get right into it. Well, good morning, Word of Life. Merry Christmas. So glad that you're able to come be a part of service this weekend. It's great to see you. Um, as you would have heard in the video a moment ago, we're going to be partnering with the Baldwinsville School District, um, and they've let us know a list of needs um, that they, you know, that will help, especially over this winter time for families that just need a little extra help right now. Um, last year, Megan and I were able to um, roll up to one of the elementary schools, and we just had piles and piles of snow boots and snow pants and um, hats, gloves, all that kind of stuff. And just to see the school being so grateful, um, it was so inspiring to both Megan and I. And you know, we don't do these things to try and self-promote or even to self-promote the church. But we want to make sure that the community knows that there is a church that cares about them. And this is one of the ways that we can help prove that um, to people who are our neighbors, people we work with, and people we, uh, we see on a daily basis. So if you're able to help contribute towards that, I'm going to tell you, I can't wait to roll up to the schools and just sort of bless the socks off them. So thank you for everyone for um, sort of considering how you can participate. We've also, as part of our December, we've been um, looking for ways to be a blessing to the community. And one of the ways is we partnered with the Christmas Bureau. For the past few weeks, there's been... Um, big boxes in the lobby where we've been able to drop off a number of things. And uh, this past week, um, I was able to go by there and I uh, was able to see some of what was going on. So this is some of the pictures there. That is stacks upon stacks of supplies. Not all of this is from Word of Life, of course. We are a you know, small part of something much bigger. But just to see everything the community was able to pile together to be a blessing to our neighbors. And so there are those boxes that have been prepared. Um, Janet Theron, who's a great member of our church, she's uh, a chairperson for the organization that uh, spearheads this. And she let me know that there were 121 families in our, in our neighborhood, in our town, in our village that signed up to be a part of this. And so you and I, along with many, many other people in Baldwinsville, um, have been a part of blessing 121 families this Christmas. So massive thank you to everyone. Come on, thank you so much. And I also thought it was a great idea to show you a couple of pictures. Yesterday, we had our senior Christmas luncheon here at the church. So we got a couple of pictures from yesterday. This was out in the lobby. So the food was spectacular. And uh, there was a great turnout yesterday. And so it was a really wonderful time. I came with the kids, and we handed out candy canes. And uh, it was a really great time. So I'm glad that senior Christmas lunch went well. But we are well and truly into the Christmas season. One week countdown. And at Christmas, as we've said for the past few weeks, there's all this uh, hive of activity around Christmas, you know, busyness, presents, and baking cookies, and all the stuff. And all the stuff is awesome. I'm not against all the stuff. I'm not mad at all the stuff. But I do feel a sense of responsibility to remember the center of all of it is the Savior of the world stepped into human history and changed our lives. And the story of Jesus... It's an ancient story. The event itself, it happened around 2,000 years ago, but its origins are much older than that. The story of the first Christmas, the nativity, the birth of Jesus, is a continuation of what had gone before. The nativity, it builds on what we read in the Old Testament. Jesus is the eternal Word of God. His life didn't begin when He was born, but rather that's when He humbled Himself and took on human nature. The biblical writers explain this mystery in greater depth, and we'll read a few of these. The first one from the book of Philippians, though he was God, talking about Jesus, 
he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Another explanation of this comes from the book of Colossians, chapter 1, verse 15. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, and rulers and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. And this from the Gospel of John, starting at the very beginning, chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning... The Word already existed. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through Him and nothing was created except through Him. The Word gave life to everything that was created and His life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness can never extinguish it. So the Word became human and made His home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. Now these passages from the New Testament, they've inspired countless minutes of sermons and lectures and countless words written on a page. But even at a very surface level, we can see that Jesus is the eternal divine Son of God. Becoming human and coming as a baby was an act of humility motivated by love. A love for lost and hurting people. A love that seeks reconciliation and offers forgiveness. Jesus' birth meant that finally he was here. The birth of Jesus is the fulfillment of God's Old Testament promises. It means the arrival of the Messiah that the Jewish people had been waiting hundreds of years for. This is a promise preached by the prophet Isaiah about 700 years before Jesus was born. Isaiah 9.6, for a child is born to us. A son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, 700 years went by with this promise at the forefront of people's minds. And at the right time, God's rescue plan for humanity takes a giant step forward, and Jesus is born. In the accounts of Jesus' life that we can see in Matthew and Luke, they both take the time and tell us Jesus' family history, and we see two long genealogies, a a list of relatives that may seem unusual and are likely not how you or I would start telling the story about Jesus. But these gospel writers are grounding the birth of Jesus firmly in the Old Testament promises. Matthew follows Mary's husband's Joseph family and goes all the way back to Abraham. Luke follows Mary's family history and goes a few generations earlier and charts Jesus' heritage all the way to Adam, the first man. Why are they taking the time to write out these genealogies? Why is it worth including them in the story of Jesus? Where they're both achieving the same thing. They are rooting Jesus into the ancient promises of God's people. The ancient promise of a savior, a rescuer, someone who had finally mend and healed the deepest and most devastating injustices in the world. The Messiah carried the promise of peace and joy. 
the hope of a Messiah had been held onto for hundreds of years. The Old Testament progressively builds the expectation of who the Messiah would be and what he would achieve. And by the time a young girl named Mary is engaged to be married to an upstanding carpenter named Joseph, God's people had been spending centuries crying and praying for the Messiah to come. The hope of a rescuer was all-consuming. It was prayed for every day and then spoken about throughout the day. I truly don't know if 21st century Americans have an equivalent. I don't know if there's something that we have all hoped for for hundreds of years, something that every single American prays for daily, a, a promise and a hope in something that causes us to take the time and teach our children, something unifying, something inspiring, something that drives hope in the middle of tragic circumstances. I don't know if we have an equivalent. Something where every single child that's born is raised with an assurance that one day it wouldn't be like this. One day God is going to rescue us. But though we may not have an equivalent, this was the reality for the first century Jewish people. The birth of Jesus meant the arrival of the Messiah. It meant that the ancient promises had been fulfilled. What has been at the forefront of everyone's mind, what has been central to the prayer life of everybody the hope of a nation that they've been clinging onto for centuries is finally here. I'm sure many of you know the Christmas story well, but let's look at the moment the angel appeared to a young lady who was having an ordinary day with nothing unusual happening. But then we see this in Luke 1. God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee, to a virgin named Mary. She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. Gabriel appeared to her and said, Greetings, favored woman, the Lord is with you. Confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think what the angel could mean. Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her, for you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. Mary asked the angel, but how can this happen? I'm a virgin. And the angel replied, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the baby to be born will be holy and he will be called the Son of God. Now, the virgin birth is one of the miracles of the Bible that skeptics and atheists will point to and say that that's impossible. There's no way that this is believable. To which I say the obvious, yes. And it was equally impossible 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years ago, when people first heard the story of Jesus, they understood the impossible nature of what they were being told. And just like modern readers and anyone who has ever heard the story of Jesus, it's known and it's understood that the virgin birth is not just unusual, it's not just unexpected, it's not only difficult, but it's impossible. And at the risk of going off on a wild tangent, I listened to a lecture this week by a man by the name of Frank Turek. He's a Christian apologist, and even though apologetics, it sounds like someone's apologizing, it means defending. So Frank Turek is a well-respected student of apologetics, meaning that he defends and debates and reasons the Christian faith against opposition. And one of the helpful things he said in this lecture was that the most impressive miracle of the Bible was creation itself. Because if there is someone who is outside space, time, and matter that is able to create everything from nothing, then that is the most impressive miracle that the Bible describes. Now, my default wants to hold the resurrection up in the highest esteem, so I started listening carefully to what he was saying. And he's making an interesting point, that if a creator is able to create all of this, the whole world, the solar system, the far reaches of the universe, if there's a creator that makes everything, 
if the Creator can make the whole of eternity, if the Creator can make all of the universe, then He can perform any miracle because if one is possible, then all are possible. If He can make creation, it's His. Because it's His creation, the Creator can intervene and disrupt the natural order of things. The Creator can work outside of cause and effect. The Creator can defy the laws of nature that He put in place. If there is a Creator that accomplished the miracle of creation, then any miracle within creation is possible. If the universe has a Creator, then miracles are possible. It's a logic that I believe is bulletproof. Now added to this, I heard an interview with someone who is possibly the most well-known and heralded atheist of the last 50 years, a man by the name of Christopher Hitchens. And I heard Christopher Hitchens say in an interview not long before his death that when he and all the other atheists get together and discuss their atheistic views, the one point he says that they are most wary of is the idea of creation. The most outspoken, widely circulated atheist in my lifetime stated that for the many other prominent atheists, you know, Sam Harris, Richard Dawkins, and the others, that they at least recognize that the creation argument gives them reason to pause. The precise fine-tuning of creation itself, for example, gives them reason to pause. The exact placement of the earth to the sun, the exact placement of the earth to the other planets is the only reason that earth is inhabitable. If the earth was a little closer to the sun, we would fry. If the earth was a little further away, we would freeze. Even now, this room, the oxygen in this room is around 22%. Scientists tell us that if the oxygen in this room was about 25 to 30%, things would suddenly start spontaneously combusting. If the earth was any different than it is right now, the amount of things that go into the intricately designed creation itself, if things were minutely different, life would be impossible. It's fascinating to Google this stuff, really. If you have an afternoon, you've got nothing else to do in this Christmas season. <laughs> look up the fine-tuning argument for creation. But if the most ardent atheists, the people who spend their time and their careers denouncing God and claiming that he doesn't even exist, and they are ready to freely admit that the role of a creator is difficult to ignore. And the simple existence of a creator opens up the possibility of any number of miracles of any shape and size, then the virgin birth is not as easy to brush off as it may sound. I tried to find out this week just how big the universe is, so I did a quick search. The standard answer I got back from reputable sources was it's about 93 billion light years. Now, a light year is the distance you would travel at the speed of light for one year. So I did some more searching. And the speed of light is around 300,000 miles a second. So traveling at that speed, you could travel around the Earth's equator 12 times in a second. So traveling at 300,000 miles a second for one year is a light year. And if you did that for 93 billion years, you'd be able to go from one end of the observable universe to the other. But as I was reading up on all this, some other experts believe that the universe is actually 250 times larger than what we can observe. So it means going 300,000 miles a second for 7 trillion years, and then we'll be able to get from one end of the universe to the other. Now, as I'm rattling off these huge numbers, it's impossible for us to wrap our heads around it. We have no frame of reference for 300,000 miles a second. We don't have any way to make sense of 7 trillion years. These are just massive numbers. They don't make any real sense to us. They're just big numbers. And yet the creator is the one who put it all in place. A creator is behind it all. 
We read this passage a few moments ago. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation, over all seven trillion years. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything, everything in the universe, every star, every galaxy, every planet, all of it was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation. He holds all seven billion light years worth of existence. He holds all of it together. And the creator that holds all this together, the vastness of creation, the creator sends a messenger at just the right time to a small town that you and I would never have heard of if Jesus wasn't born there. A city that was looked down upon by neighboring cities, and he goes to an ordinary young lady who's getting ready to be married and tells her that she's going to have a baby. Not an ordinary baby, but a baby that will grow up to be the savior of the world. Back to Luke 1. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. The God who knew what was happening seven trillion light years away on the edge of the universe showed up in a small town to an unsuspecting young lady and made it possible for her to have a baby. This baby not only brought joy to Mary, but would grow up to be the savior that the world desperately needs. And this is how she responds. Oh, how my soul praises the Lord. How my spirit rejoices in God my savior. For he took notice of his lowly servant girl. And from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one is holy. And he has done great things for me. Between Mary's encounter with the angel, her own understanding of the Old Testament, and even her time with her relative Elizabeth, who had her own supernatural story, Mary knew that she was a part of something unique and special and miraculous and world-changing. She knew that the hopes and dreams of a nation were somehow going to come to pass. The world was about to witness God fulfilling his promise to Isaiah. A child is born to us. A son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Even though Mary and Joseph didn't consummate their marriage until after Jesus was born, I assume either the rumors and gossip flowed as there were ongoing questions about how Mary became pregnant before she was married, or perhaps Mary and Joseph would have worked hard to have concealed Mary's pregnancy. But to further add to their difficulties, the Roman government was taking a census and everyone had to go to their ancestral town. And for Joseph, that meant Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem is around 90 miles from Nazareth, which means this journey could have taken as long as five or six days traveling by foot or by donkey. Now, for us, to drive to California from here in upstate New York, it would take about 40 hours. So we could spread that over a five or six day trip. Is there any husband here who thinks he could convince his wife they were nine months pregnant and should take a road trip to California. Now, I don't even need to ask Megan. I already know what the answer is. And that's in a car with air conditioning and Bob Dylan on the radio. But for Joseph and Mary, this was an exhausting trip, possibly in the beating Middle Eastern sun while heavily pregnant. I'm sure that the Romans demanding that they go to Bethlehem for the census was already deeply aggravating, and to make matters even worse, they arrive and find that any place they would hope to get lodging had already been taken. And then we read this. While they were there, 
the time came for her baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available for them. And so Jesus was born, not in a palace, not with experienced midwives, but in some kind of shelter for animals. I think it's fair to say that there was nothing optimal about the circumstances. Some controversy about how he became pregnant, a backbreaking trip that was five or six days away from home, trying to comply with the Roman census, not having anywhere to stay, going into labor and having to settle down in a shelter or a barn for animals. Christmas cards are cute, but the depiction of the nativity is definitely cleaned up and made neat and tidy and picturesque. I can't imagine for a second that it felt clean or smelled nicely. But the important thing for us to see here is that even though all the circumstances and factors were imperfect and undesirable, it was God's timing. That's what mattered. It was his time for his plans and purposes and his promises to be unraveled. Was it the right time for Mary to be interrupted and find out that she would become pregnant with the Son of God? The trip for the census would have never been convenient, but add on top of that a heavily pregnant wife, and you see that this is a giant headache, but it was God's timing. What matters in this story is that God's timing typically doesn't line up with our timing, but it's God's timing. It's His leading, His direction, and it's perfect. The external factors being unconducive and suboptimal. In fact, it looked like it was dreadful timing for this world-changing miracle to happen, but it was God's timing and the world was changed and the lives of hundreds of millions, possibly billions of Christians all over the world have been changed because God became humanity. Because Jesus was born, despite what looked like terrible circumstances, the world has never been the same. We also see in the Christmas story, the Christmas story that we're so familiar with that we see the shepherds and the wise men. Luke tells us that a group of shepherds are having just an ordinary night watching their flock, and these men were likely hired hands. There's no reason to think that the shepherds were terrible, awful, evil people, but they were certainly outsiders. Working as a shepherd means spending extended periods of time out in the fields away from town, possibly for days or weeks. They probably wouldn't have had a meaningful connection to a local synagogue. They certainly would have struggled to have adhered to the strict religious demands of the Pharisees. Perhaps the census in Bethlehem and a large number of visitors affected the shepherds, but it's likely that it didn't. But otherwise, this evening was like hundreds of other evenings they spent, away from the community, watching someone else's sheep for very little pay. This was just an ordinary night. But in Luke 2, we read, there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. They were terrified, but the angel reassured them, don't be afraid, he said, I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. And you will recognize him by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth lying in a manger. Suddenly the angel was joined by vast hosts of others, the armies of heaven, praising God and saying, glory to God in highest heaven and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. Now, there's a lot of spectacular things that happen throughout the Bible that I wish I could have seen. There's a lot of things, a lot of miracles, a lot of moments in the Scriptures that I believe would have been visually stunning. The parting of the Red Sea is an obvious one. Elijah calling down fire from heaven on Mount Carmel. The walls of Jericho crashing as Joshua leads the Israelites around. The smoke filling the temple when Solomon officiated the grand opening and a number of others. 
But I think this moment that we just read, the, the heavenly host, the armies of heaven appearing like this on a Judean hillside would be one of the most visually stunning moments we see in the whole Bible. We just read in Luke 2, the armies of heaven. Typically, angels are described as messengers. Even here we see an angel from the Lord appeared among them, which is a messenger. But what we just read is that there's this vast crowd of angels of the army and the warriors of heaven. Who could possibly know the spiritual battle there just fought and won to ensure the Son of God would be born in the prophesied time and place? Who could imagine the victory cry from the armies of heaven as they declare to this group of shepherds trying to get some sleep after a long day of taking care of this sheep? Who knows what a visual spectacle this would have been? But these outsiders, the people who didn't feel any strong connection to God, these shepherds are now included in one of the most spectacular moments of all of human history. This reveals the heart of God and is consistently shown in the Bible that the outsider is invited in. This idea of the outsider being welcomed in is also seen in the story of the wise men from the book of Matthew. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose and we have come to worship him. The star they had seen in the east guided them toward Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasure chest and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So it's become popular to assume that there was three of these wise men because they brought three gifts, but the Bible doesn't specify. And we say in English that they're wise men, but... The term wise men doesn't really give us any clue about who they are or their background, but the Greek word used is the word magi. And that appears to be a descriptor and a title. The magi were known to come from Persia, and the magi were noble members of the royal court. It was very important, and they were respected um, among the servants, but they certainly weren't kings. But they were a part of the educated class and would have been advisors to kings and rulers. We see people in a similar position in the book of Daniel, where people are brought in to advise the king. Now, you may know the story, and the people that are brought in are fortune tellers in the book of Daniel. And these fortune tellers also dabble in things like astrology. It appears that at the time of the first century, the Magi performed similar tasks and functions. Now, since the time of Moses, over a thousand years before this, God's people have understood the importance of keeping the Ten Commandments. Interestingly, the Magi's pagan rituals and idolatry would have broken the very first commandment, you must have no other God but me. The pagan rituals and idolatry would have certainly broken the first commandment. These are not the people that we would expect to be among the first to recognize Jesus as king. These are not the people that you and I would expect to come and bow in worship. These men were foreigners who may have never heard the promises of God before, but here they are worshiping the Messiah. These men were not a part of God's chosen people, and yet God led and guided them to himself. The Magi, the wise men, there was no obvious reason that they would come and be a part of the Jesus story. Yet, similar to the shepherds, we see God calling in the outsiders. God's people have been hoping and praying for the Messiah. And then God sends an angel to tell Mary that she is going to have a role in God answering those prayers. The ancient promises that have been held onto for centuries are being fulfilled. Mary, a young unmarried virgin conceiving a child, was and is completely impossible miracle. 
And this is how the eternal Son of God would become humanity so he could save humanity. The one who created the universe loves us indescribably. The one who created us is in his own image. He upheld his commitment. He upheld his promise to send a Messiah who would bring peace and who would heal humanity. Even though the conditions, they didn't look perfect from a human viewpoint. An unmarried pregnant mother in a strict religious culture from a backwards town. An unwelcomed five to six day trip from Mary to Bethlehem. Getting there and finding out there's no place to even stay. The only option being to stay in a shelter for animals and then we go into labor. Despite the stressful circumstances, it was God's timing for his son to be born. Despite all the factors that would prompt you and I to rethink our plans, it was God's timing. And Jesus was born permanently and eternally changing the course of human history. Shortly after Mary became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit, an angel visited Joseph and confirmed to him that the baby was indeed the one who would save his people from their sins. The baby is the savior they're waiting for. And the angel reminds him of the 700-year-old prophecy from Isaiah. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Emmanuel appears to be a title rather than a name, but that meaning and implication is enormous. The promise assumes that this is not what people are currently experiencing, that they are not experiencing God with us, but rather their life experience shows that God is distant, God is unrelatable, but that's going to change with the birth of Jesus. Even if someone believes in God or the divine or the creator, it may appear that he's out there somewhere. The suggestion that God is personal or relatable or involved in the lives of people might not match the day-to-day experience of their reality. We may hear about the vastness of creation, how massive the universe is, the incredible discoveries that have been made about stars and planets and galaxies, as well as incredible discoveries about Earth. We may conclude that there is a creator that started it all, and yet the creator can feel distant and estranged from us. But then, a baby was born, a special, unique baby in impossible and stressful circumstances. And the shepherds and the wise men and the outsiders find out the promise of God is with us. This is the promise that our broken relationship with God, the deepest cause of pain and despair, that distance and estrangement is over. It's not just a theory or a nice sounding idea. This is the promise that Christians have found to be true all over the world. But this is God changing human history because he has come to dwell with us. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. Here's another verse that we read earlier. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names. That is the name of Jesus and every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The theme that Megan and I believe that as a church we need to grab a hold of this year 
is continuing what Jesus started. Continuing what Jesus started. We spent about a month looking at this idea and this theme back in September, and we considered what it was that Jesus started and how are we supposed to continue that. And what do we learn about continuing what Jesus started by looking at the nativity story? We've covered a lot of ground today. I'm aware of that. We've read a lot of passages from the Bible. But as we consider what does it mean to continue what Jesus started in light of the Christmas story, to review some of the verses we read, we saw that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness can never extinguish it. In a dark, corrupt, confused, and angry world, we need the light that Jesus brings. Believers need to continue to be the light that Jesus told us to be. We aren't called to yell about the darkness, but to be the solution, to be the light, to make a positive difference. That's why helping with the Christmas Bureau or helping Beeville Schools or all the other ways that we are part of, it's important because we are determined to prove to the community that there's a church that cares about them. We want to be the light in the darkness and continue what Jesus started. We also read that he'll be called the Prince of Peace. The Prince of Peace. I have never heard anyone say we have too much peace. I have never heard anyone complain about a lack of conflict or disputes or not having enough arguing or fighting. He is the Prince of Peace. Continuing what he started includes further promoting the peace he brings. My friends, be ready with a kind word. Look for ways to bring calm into conflict. Do all you can to live peaceably with all people. We also read that he will be very great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. The message of Jesus is an eternal message. Reign forever, his kingdom will never end. And when we consider the message of Jesus, it's infinitely beyond just this moment. Consequently, it changes how we live day to day. It changes how we represent Jesus and our faith. We are not simply representing a particular church or a group or an organization, but we are representing an eternal kingdom of God. Continuing what he started means continuing an eternal perspective. The angel said, I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The good news is that we have a savior, a savior that can rescue us from our sins and give us the forgiveness that we desperately need, a savior that can repair the broken relationship humanity has with God. All people includes a group of unsuspecting shepherds and the wise men because outsiders are being welcomed in. The wise men entered the house and saw the child with his mother Mary and they bowed down and worshipped him. This response is the response we should all have. Heartfelt, sincere, passionate worship. They bowed down and worshipped him. The right response to his love is to love him right back. The right response to his forgiveness is undying gratitude. The right response to his grace is to have a love for others. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Would you stand with me as we pray and we go back into worship? Lord, the Christmas story is a story I'm sure many of us, if not most of us have heard many times. Lord, may it be as fresh to us today as it's ever been. Lord, may you speak to people in a new way from this story that perhaps we've heard every year for as long as we can remember. Lord, that you stepped in, you made a way, you fulfilled your promises. And Lord, may we truly know what it means to live with God with us. Not separated, not distant, not out there, not estranged.
but you are close. You're here. You're relatable. You made it possible. God is with us. May that be each and every person here experienced today. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship together.